The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. The passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. If you have a blue Bible, this can be found on the page of 584. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, it will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you again. Uh, let's pray. Our great God, um, you see all, you know all. You know that we come this morning with burdens, we come with cares and questions and struggles, sufferings and temptations. You know all of that. And God, I ask that our meditation on this passage right now would be part of your provision for those situations. Lord, we, we do declare this. We want to declare this. Help us declare, I will not be afraid, for my hope is in your name. So now as we, we look at these words, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be active and that each one would do business with you, God. We would... We would look at ourselves, we would think about our lives, and we would bless your name. Amen. Are we safe or are we in danger? That question is kind of basic to human functioning. And if you're wrong, it can have huge implications, right? So, um, you know, I, I try to do a good job of keeping my sons safe, creating a safe environment for them and, and helping them to know that they're safe. And yet, my seven-year-old still imagines at night that bad guys are waiting in our backyard and as soon as he closes his eyes, they're going to scale the wall and break through his window and who knows what. Uh, and there's so many anxious tears because he doesn't truly know at those times that he's safe. Or someone can think that they're safe, but they're actually in danger. So, you know, if I don't know that the gas is on the stove just a little bit, that can certainly be a tragedy in the making. If you're safe, then you can kind of kick up your feet, you can relax. But if you're in danger, then your senses are heightened, your heart beats faster. There's a constant vigilance that's required. So are we safe or are we in danger? Specifically, Christians. Christian, are you safe or are you in danger? Even just in our last passage last week, we saw the invitation that we should draw near with the full assurance of faith. Full assurance, that, 
means safety. That sounds like safety. And yet, a few verses later, we were reminded that it's possible for the church to include fakers who at some point stop what seemed like their trajectory toward Christ, and they turn away and they center their lives definitively on something else. And in so doing, they trample the good news of Christ underfoot, the outrage, the spirit of grace, whose benefits in his community they had enjoyed, and they incur the vengeance of a holy God. Because where God's mercy is fully seen, fully understood, and in a secondhand derivative sort of way, even kind of partaken of, and then the heart turns to hardness, well, then there's no safety there but a fearful expectation of judgment. So if you're tracking through this wondrous book of Hebrews with us, you might feel a bit jerked around because of how its message is woven together. You learn, okay, I can be certain that Christ is the high priest I need, and through him I can draw near to God with confidence. I'm a partaker in these magnificent designs of God that have now come to fruition in the gospel to redeem messed up people like me. And Jesus keeps interceding for me. I'm kept secure by his priesthood. This is, this is beautiful. I'm safe, truly and eternally safe in him. I can kick my feet up and rest from the dead works I used to pursue in order to justify myself before other people or to try to win God's approval. I'm safe. I don't need that anymore. But on the other hand, a different type of vigilance is required we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So there's this back and forth, back and forth, safety, danger, safety, danger. It's very intentional because both are real. This book is addressing people who had come into the Christian church and they were considered within the family of faith, but now due to persecution, they're entertaining just the slightest question. Is it even worth it? What well, does it really matter if I just kind of shrink back out of the spotlight and go back to a life where I can blend in? And these folks need to be told, just because you've been associated with the people of God, that doesn't guarantee immunity from God's judgment on his enemies. Now, as Adam said last week, the last thing I would ever want to do is to cause the children of God to doubt their salvation. That's not the purpose of these passages. But also the last thing I would ever want to do is leave the pretenders and the presumers feeling assured of their salvation. See, it's through the warnings and these reminders that God keeps his true children safe. So fear has its place in cutting through the deceitfulness of sin and alerting us to its danger. And then after fear has done that work, it's God's kindness that then leads us to repentance and stirs his love stirs up our loving obedience in return. So we're going to see some of that comfort in our passage today as well. There is safety for our souls if we don't shrink back from following Jesus. That's our main thought for today. There is safety for our souls if we don't shrink back from following Jesus. And in order to get to that understanding, the author of Hebrews is going to point us to the past, the present, and the future. That's kind of our outline for today. Remember how you didn't shrink back. By the grace of God, you didn't shrink back in the past. So make that same commitment for the present because you also have a view to the sure reward of the future. So he starts by reminiscing about the past with these Jewish Christians to, to whom he's writing. In verse 32, he says, 
But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, he means right after you became a Christian, when God's light had shone on you. Recall those times that you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now some of you in this room know what it's like to endure a hard struggle, maybe with a business, maybe with health or a relationship, or you know, just to keep going long after most people would have given up. And, and that's a taste of the resolve that's required with our faith when sufferings come along. Most people would just chuck Jesus to the side. Well, he's not doing me much good right now. And that would be tragically short-sighted. And that would reveal a very small perspective about what's really going on here. So the first readers of this letter to the Hebrews, they maintained the correct perspective and they had kept going amid suffering and the author wants to remind them of those times. Notice that he doesn't encourage them by reminiscing about the good old times, right? Like, guys, remember the good old times when it was, it was so fun to walk with Jesus? Maybe if you stick it out, there can be some good times like that again. No, that's, that's kind of a paltry hope. Just to, just to have you know, a few more good times on this earth. No, instead he reminds them of the bad old times when they really paid the price for following Jesus. And that's because when the supports are kicked out from under you, that's when you learn if your faith is genuine or not. And this suffering that, that he's referring to, which they had experienced sort, shortly after coming to the faith, now it serves as a source of joy and strength for them as they remember it because it proved that their faith was real. You simply can't take stands like that if nothing supernatural is happening within you. So it's in times of suffering that you rediscover that your God is enough and you're able to show your kids and others that truth as well in vivid ways. So it's the trials that are the landmarks to look back on because they remind us that God is faithful and God is active in our lives. So how exactly did this crowd suffer in the past? Verse 33 tells us sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they experienced the the savage rejection of society, yet they kept loving God. They kept serving each other in the midst of that. And, you know, we might have a hard time imagining that people actually went to prison just because they were Christians. That's all. But there are many examples, actually, in the book of Acts. You see that in the first generation of Christians, they quite frequently faced trumped-up charges um, and were thrown in prison just because of their faith. And um, it's not just in Acts that that happened, right? Like, this happened widely in Europe in the century following the Reformation. It happened everywhere under communism. It still happens regularly in China in the Muslim world, really all of those countries that you see highlighted on the map downstairs in the commons. And we'd like to think that imprisonment like that can't really happen here, right? No. But if history has taught us anything, it's that nothing is sacred and civilization can take a turn in shocking, gener- shocking directions even in just a few years. Well, in the ancient world, prisons were particularly nasty places. 
Okay, they didn't they weren't held to the same humanitarian standards that we have today. So the Christians who were visiting their friends and relatives in prison, they'd be bringing them essential food and warm clothing and maybe medicine that they needed because those things weren't provided or or at least not in sufficient quantity by the authorities. But by showing up and showing compassion in this way, what were they doing? They were kind of exposing themselves also as Christians or at least as sympathizers. They were inviting further hardship on themselves because of their kindness to the Christians in prison. And it says that their property was plundered. It was forcibly confiscated. How would you feel about that, right? Like, think about the possessions that you cherish the most. Maybe some family heirlooms, maybe um, an entertainment system, maybe, I don't know what it is for you, some collector books or music or artwork. Maybe it's your car. Imagine if police just showed up took it, and then later you see it being used or given away by a local official. Again, this is a normal Christian experience in many countries. And just a side comment here. These experiences aren't listed to, um, to get them riled up. They're, they're to encourage them about what God has brought them through in the past it's not to, to make them angry and like, hey, yeah, that's right. I need to be stockpiling weapons for when the feds come knocking. That's, that's not the purpose. The point is their faith, not their earthly well-being. So passages like this in our Bible should remind us that Christians don't have to win the culture war, nor should we expect to. Think of Jesus and the ridicule and the loss that he endured. We follow in those footsteps. Now, when the apostles were arrested and beaten in Acts chapter 5, it says that afterward they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And uh, that's the right response, and, and that's the story also for these folks to whom the author of Hebrews is writing. The community had stood together. They had thanked God even as they were being compromised and ridiculed for his name. Are there ways in which you see our culture uh, mistreating, misrepresenting Christians in the public square? Maybe it's happened to you personally. If not, it, it will become more and more common because Christians are increasingly being branded as extremists. It will be common to say, not only are we legally required to accommodate priorities contrary to our faith, but eventually it'll be legally mandated to celebrate and support those social norms as well. And if we don't, then we will face great hatred and loss, just like the three who refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue in Daniel chapter 3. And the thing is, the way that society will hurt us, it won't feel, it usually won't feel clean, right? It can be confusing. It, it, it certainly won't feel noble at the time. Like if people just came up to you and said, now you're going to suffer for the name of Jesus, You'd be like, okay, I, I think I can do that. It might be easier to have resolve, but a lot of times there's misrepresentations of our words or misunderstanding of our intentions, and it all feels so dirty, and it leaves us wondering, like, what am I even proving by drawing a line here? It can feel so pointless, so futile, and compromise can seem so harmless in that moment. But this is what true faith requires. If we're not willing to endure affliction, then we simply can't be Christians. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the recipients of Hebrews are to remember the times when they accepted that faith and they endured that way previously because now persecution is facing them again. But we don't know the details, but it seems like it might be persecution of an even more tempting nature, a more subtle nature, because strangely, you know, it can be easier to not give in when you're facing that bloody opposition than when you're merely facing social pressure. If you know that there's a stand to take, then you can prepare yourself. But if you don't necessarily see the hundred little stands that you should take each day, then it can numb your conscience. It can make you feel anesthetized to the larger plot of what's happening. So while, while I, I do think that the pressure in our society will will increase like we've been talking about. This more subtle pressure is mostly what we face at this precise moment. Maybe verbal abuse, maybe mockery, maybe some slight public shame. And who doesn't want to be well-liked? Who doesn't want to seem put together or welcomed around the water cooler at work or in the cafeteria at school? All you have to do is dodge a few questions, stay silent when certain topics are brought up, half-heartedly laugh at things that are anything but funny. But what's happening there? We're shrinking back. We're wanting to blend in. Instead of resting in Christ's sacrifice to provide everything we need, in that moment, we're offering sacrifices to a different God, the opinion of other people. This is where the struggle is. And so they need to remember the struggle that they faced successfully through faith previously, but why were they able to stay so strong under pressure in the past? The end of verse 34 tells us, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So here we're blending a remembrance of the past with a confidence about the future. There's a contrast set up here. Like, would you rather keep from being plundered of your earthly possessions or would you rather be assured of inheriting eternal possessions? And when you put it in that way, as an either-or scenario, then present sufferings are to be expected. They're even strangely welcomed as steps on the road that leads to final salvation. Now, we don't try to bring about our own suffering. That wouldn't accomplish anything. That would do us no good. But when our sovereign king deems it necessary for us to go through a certain trial, we trust him as our shepherd, and we trust that there's much good to be gained through that endurance. The New Testament speaks a lot about how we're going to inherit with Christ and how the faithful will be rewarded. And the exact nature of those rewards isn't described first probably because we we couldn't even begin to grasp it even if it was described Um, but second because the thing that makes them worthwhile is that they are part of our life with God forever right we don't we do look forward to the rewards but not in a mercenary way that's like yeah if I do this for God he'll give me the good stuff no our possessions would not seem worth it in the end if they weren't flowing from and to God who is the ultimate treasure himself but the point is that in persecution regardless of whatever you lose on this earth what you gain from faithfulness in those times can never be taken away And you know, it's not only persecution that can test our faith and make us want to shrink back 
from a clear devotion to Jesus. It can happen even as we're just kind of worn down through normal death and disease and poverty and loss. And it may seem like that's unrelated, like, well, those trials aren't like imprisonment. They're not like being punished for the faith. Actually, that's not quite true. See, every time of suffering could be wielded by the enemy of our souls to destroy our faith. Or that same time of suffering could be entrusted by us to our good Father, to our sovereign Lord. And in that case, then the suffering can be the absolute making of our faith. But either way, when suffering comes, what should Christians fear most of all? Not, what am I going to lose? Might I die here? No. What Christians should fear is the potential that our faith might fail. It's been said that there are only three things that can happen to Christians, and you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose which one you're going to get at what time. Number one, Christians can have a peaceful life. They can enjoy good things, and that is very good. Number two, Christians can die, and that takes you immediately to the best and the forever good. So that's very good. And if that happens to you, you will have no sorrow forever, and you will never be sad that you died when you died. Or number three, Christians can suffer and they can live on, and the Lord will use that to refine you and to make you good and more able to enjoy the good forever. And that is very good. So the Christian's hopeful endurance in times of trial, it's much different than fatalism. Uh, an early 20th century pastor named Donald Barnhouse said, it's actually the pagan or the atheist who in dull hopelessness just bows to the inevitable. But a Christian accepts the suffering, knowing that God is bringing him through to glory. And from the hope of the past to the hope of the future, he sees the connection running through his suffering like a thread that binds all together. His life is like the turbulent rapids of a river. But he knows that the river comes from a still spring and is flowing to a calm ocean. In this knowledge, the Christian has settled peace. So let's pause and just recall the early days of your walk with Christ. What were they like? Maybe you're still in them. Were there ways in which you had to take a stand or maybe look foolish to people? Are there hardships that you've already endured for Jesus? Maybe that you were, able, you were able to go through with hope and joy, but for some reason now the excitement is gone and it just maybe feels like there's more at stake. Remember the zeal that you once had. Remember how you were glad after the fact that you spoke his name, that you shared his truth, that you stood with his people. Remember that you have found Jesus to be better than anything this world has to offer. In light of that history, now, what are you going to do with it in the present? Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It's important that we see that by sticking with Jesus through suffering, we're not like suddenly saying like, oh no, it's a hard time. I've, I'm going to have to attain something because I don't have what I need to hold on. No, rather... With sticking with Jesus in suffering is just kind of like refusing to throw something away. So we have this sufficient provision 
in the gospel. But the world around us believes that it's a dead weight. And so they, in the midst of suffering, will influence you to throw it away, to just drop it. And you know, the temptation to trash your faith, it may feel like, well, I'm just going to do nothing for now. I'm just, I'm just going to kind of coast because, you know, God certainly doesn't seem to be doing anything for me. That's what we see. We, do, we see a decision to just kind of be passive in relation to God for a while. But what's actually happening is that you're picking up this priceless treasure and you're tossing it in the dumpster. Now, occasionally, people realize what they've done and they run back to the dumpster. They dumpster dive and they, they get it back. And they're full of joy even though they come out covered in banana peels and grease and coffee grounds, whatever. Um, all that could have been avoided if they just clung to the treasure. But they, they do get it back and they, they're full of joy. That's the minority case. More often than not, people don't go back. They continue to downplay the value of the treasure that they threw away, and they're not willing to dumpster dive. If our faith slips into the trash bin of our lives, it usually stays there. So this exhortation to not throw away your confidence, it it kind of builds a bridge for us into the chapters that are coming, chapter 11 and 12. And in those chapters, we're going to see some amazing things. We're going to see that this enduring faith that pleases God is exhibited for us in this chain of Old Testament examples. And then in chapter 12, we'll see Jesus as the ultimate example because when he was on earth, he was the founder and perfecter of our faith. So in that section, we're going to see All of God's promises on display, a name, an inheritance, a city, a homeland, an eternal family, a loving king. It's glorious. But while these promises were made to the people of God as a whole, we also see that each individual has to live out the faith and not forfeit their share in salvation. So you see our passage has, it's kind of shifted from the past to the future And that's because memory of our past endurance, that's important, but it's not enough on its own to keep us faithful amid hostility now. We also need to look to the future. Verse 36 spells this out. It says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. People who take God's promises seriously, uh, they take appropriate action in the present in light of those announcements about the future. So, for example, if you trust your boss that, that he's going to treat your department to this um, really expensive lunch, then you don't stop at Panda Express on the way, even if you're hungry, because you want your appetite to endure. If you believe your dying father that there's oil on your property, then you don't sell the ranch, even if you need money right now, because you want your access to the land to endure. Well, similarly, if you believe the promises that are in this book, then you will take steps now to ensure that your faith endures. Faith isn't just an intellectual assent to God's words. True faith actually moves us to do something, uh, to do the will of God just like Jesus did. Remember that two weeks ago in chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus came to replace an emphasis on sacrifice for sin. No more sacrifices. He's this final sacrifice. And what does he give us instead? New hearts that want to do the will of God. 
He came to earth in just that way, saying, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And we'll read in chapter 12 that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. The joy of the Father's pleasure, the joy of gathering a family uh, for all time, the joy of defeating evil through suffering, right? The joy of seeing all things made new. His suffering, his suffering was the only suffering that definitively won the war. And yet our suffering is like his in some ways. It is in his footsteps. And so our suffering equally can only be endured by the joy set before us. We have to have an eye toward that joy. We have to have motivation to suffer these things. And if you're not hoping in the bright promises that God has given us, then you simply won't do what God asks of you in the moment. The future informs our present. Thomas Watson, an English preacher in the 1600s, he noted that Christians do not arrive at perseverance when they sit still and do nothing. It's not with us as with passengers in a ship who are carried to the end of their voyage while they sit still in the vessel, or as it is with noblemen who have their rents brought in without any toil or labor. But we arrive at salvation through the use of means as a man comes to the end of a race by running or to a victory by fighting. So what does endurance today look like practically? So far in the book of Hebrews, endurance has been framed as paying much closer attention to what we have heard. It's been framed as considering Jesus. It's been framed as rejecting unbelief, pressing on to enter rest, moving on past the the elementary teachings toward maturity and drawing near in the full assurance of faith. But all of those things, all those actions of endurance, they're very inward, aren't they? They're, they're things that we're doing inside of ourselves. Is there anything we should do outwardly, something tangible that enables all of those inward things to occur? Yes. We've been told twice in Hebrews, the one easiest way to cultivate our faith gathering together. Chapter 3 said, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then last week in chapter 10 we read, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. This is one reason why we made the jump to weekly life groups. The stakes are life and death, and you're not going to make it to the end on your own or just with your biological family. So you need to stop dating the church. You need to commit. You need to see the local church as God's provision for your endurance. Like Adam said last week, this is, this is doing life together. It goes far beyond just church attendance, though it's certainly not less than that. The local church is God's provision to keep you safe. If you imagine the Christian life as a marathon, think about how the church provides what you need to make it to the end. So the church provides nourishment for your souls through prayers, praise, through teaching. You could consider this like the Gatorade or the energy gels that runners consume throughout the race. The church helps bring about conviction of sin, maybe through teaching, maybe through one-on-one -on -one rebuke 
exhortation, maybe through when you get to see the confession of a brother or sister, then that does something to your own heart and, and softens it and says, well, I have, I'm, I have things I need to get rid of too in my life. So the church helps us to turn from sin, to get rid of the toxic waste. This is a little crude, but you can think of that as the porta-potties along the marathon route or, or the, the tree or the alley. I mean, if you've never been around a marathon, they can get kind of messy. And the church also just boosts our willpower and our joy to run to the end. It gives us focus and boost because friends are running alongside you. And also the legacy of brothers and sisters who already finished the race and are cheering you on from the sideline. You know, for the original audience of Hebrews, fear was leading them to neglect gathering together. Fear. So let's commit now to not let fear or laziness or apathy or idolatry prevent us from seriously and earnestly participating in the life of the church. Because it's what God has graciously given us to keep us safe. It's what we need. The danger lies in checking out. You need only do nothing, and inertia will drag you off course, even if you call yourself a Christian your whole life. So keep running, and don't be foolish enough to think that you can do it well enough without being plugged in to the life of the local church. Let's sum up the ground that we've covered. We've seen that endurance in faith is where we find safety. And verse 39 summarizes all this with a quote from the Old Testament. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is a fusion of a prophecy of the Lord's coming from Isaiah along with a statement about who pleases the Lord from Habakkuk and the righteous one shall live by faith. Those words should sound a little bit familiar to the student of the Bible because it's a statement that threads through our Bibles. It's, it's actually quoted in Romans and in Galatians. Um, Paul uses it to, to unpack the nature of the good news. Well, here in Hebrews, the emphasis is that Jesus is coming back, and so we must not stop trusting and shaping our lives around this good news, that safety comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The Lord will find no pleasure in us when he returns if we do not go on living by faith. Righteous one shall live by faith. That sounds pretty easy, right? Like, okay, great. All I have to do is believe God and then he's pleased with us. That's true, but, but actually this is the hardest way to live. Because it means that we can't rely on our own strength. We can't rely on our own schemes as everyone else does in the world around us. Instead, we can only rely on what Jesus has done for us. We aren't distracted by man-made solutions or the approval and praise that comes from people, but our hearts are laser-focused on the promises of God. And we can only do that by grace. It will feel lonely. It'll feel foolish at times, like the world is getting the best of you. But you're trusting God that his way is worth it in the end. You're believing Jesus when he said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He overcame the world on his cross and in his resurrection. And that still is playing out before us. And one day he will make all things new.
The way of faith has always been a narrow and a ridiculed path. Trusting in the one living God has always felt like a fool's errand. And this is why we have God's word to keep us oriented. You know, Habakkuk, um, just before the, the verse it's quoted here, in the 7th century BC, he wrote, The Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Even in Habakkuk's day, the faithful struggled to stay faithful. But the Lord promises the fulfillment will come. It will not delay. Friends, I don't know all that you're facing in your lives. I do know that there are lesser functional gods in your lives that need to be dethroned. I know that there are addictions to turn from. I know that there are broken relationships to navigate. There are health crises to walk through. There are disappointments that we need to entrust to God. And there's a daily, sometimes a minute-by-minute decision to make. Will I live by faith in God's promises? Or will I choose the more immediate solution and so risk hardening my heart? Verse 39, <clears throat> verse 39 gives us a motto that we can recite. When God's way seems crazy or God's way seems irrelevant, look at these words. Let's memorize this verse. Let's, let's learn to speak this verse back to ourselves. It says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What if we truly took that statement to heart? What if that was the heartbeat of our church? Like, I don't know, it'd be cool if we could put it on a banner or do some calligraphy or something and have it hanging downstairs. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Tell yourself that every time temptation comes knocking, every time God's way looks difficult or disappointing. This verse is in some ways a conclusion to everything we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus' ministry is better. And because of that, we are this kind of people, not shrinking back, not those who will be destroyed, but of the, we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Think of it as a, as a conclusion to everything that's come before in Hebrews, but also a sneak peek to what comes next, because this verse is also an introduction to the final chapters. In them, we're going to think more about what does it look like to live by faith, what does it look like to be these people who proclaim with their lives that Jesus is better? For now, let's just sit for a week with the self-assessment that's encouraged by these verses. So remember the past. Think about how you were drawn to Christ in the beginning, how you've seen him as better than anything, anything that this world has to offer. And think about maybe there's times when you've chosen him at great cost to yourself. You've paid a price. Remember those times. Celebrate that past. And next, look to the future. Think about a better possession and an abiding one. Great reward. Everything that you have lost while walking the path of Christ is going to be more than restored. And finally, in light of the past and the future, 
Decide what you must do and change and say for today. Endure. Perseverance is the present tense of the Christian faith. And your souls will be safe from danger if you don't shrink back. Let's pray. Father, um, many of us in this room may feel stuck right now. Like, I, I want to endure. I don't want to shrink back, but when I'm up against it, it feels impossible. So God, fix our minds again on how even our faith is a gift. This is all of you. You are saving a people by grace. So we cry out to you now. God, I don't feel like I can endure. Help me endure. Give me what I need. We praise you, God, as the one who gives everything that he requires. We praise you for that. And Lord, we know that also others are here today who may know full well that they are in danger because they have not been walking by faith. They haven't wanted to pay the price to be associated with you. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes, that you would cause Jesus to look better than anything this world has to offer. And Lord, now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would use it in our lives like a signpost on a marathon route. Use it to remind us of what we're about and where we're going. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.